You're listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast, a cape-free zone where we share stories and break down strength and struggle narratives to reimagine lives with us at the center. I'm your host, Kayla Charleston. Now let's get into it. Okay, first of all, I'm a little embarrassed by how obviously excited I sounded in this interview. I was editing it and I heard all these parts where my voice was several octaves higher than normal and like even introducing the guests, I feel like I was doing the most, but fortunately the guest was a good sport and she didn't seem annoyed by me being a complete fangirl. So a note about this interview, I recorded it at the beginning of April, right after season two ended and before the long break I took between seasons. So some of the references may seem a bit older, but I think you should still be able to enjoy the interview. The topic for today is massage noir and various contexts in which we see it play out. And Moya Bailey, who is today's guest, defines the concept during the interview. But I'm sure a lot of you have already heard the term massage noir and heard it in reference to black women's experiences. So um, Moya released a book this year, 2021, that deals with massage noir, specifically in digital spaces. And it talks about how black trans women and queer folks have been resisting massage noir using digital activism. So I wanted to talk about some of my own experiences of massage noir that have stuck with me and they are specifically in the context of teaching. And there are a lot of things that I had to endure as a professor, teaching as a professor that I know for a fact my white and or male counterparts did not have to. I taught classes in African-American studies and sociology, which meant a lot of the discussion, uh, there was a lot of discussion about race and gender and all kinds of other isms and systems of oppression in society. And um, on top of teaching classes that attracted more students of color, I also taught at a school that had more students of color than the average university, which I'm sure has a lot to do with what I'm about to say. Um, most of the problems that I had were, were with male students and of those students, most of them were black male students. I mostly found that if white women were an issue, it was that they would try to find underhanded ways to challenge me. So like not quite as combative as like male students, but they would do things like ask questions that they didn't think I could answer. So like to make me look less um, qualified in my position as the professor or whatever, especially when I was a newer, uh, professor or instructor or whatever, and I may not have come off as, as confident. It, it would be those instances where white women would be like, hmm, let me, let me throw this question at her and see if she can answer it so I can make her, you know, look less qualified. But, um, white male students would challenge me as well, but they would do it more openly in terms of like the data I would present. They would question the sources that I used to back up my claims or uh, my claims about racism or sexism or, they would center their own experiences to talk over points I was making about people of color. So, for example, I was talking about um, one class. I was talking about the reasons why colorblindness is actually a form of racism. And I had a white male student say something like, you know, I don't understand why we even make a, a big deal about calling people different races, because in my opinion, we're all the same. So like, bro, I just told you why that's problematic and why colorblindness is really racism. And you just going to sit here and center your feelings on race. 
okay. Or for example, um, I was making points about racist hiring practice and I had a white male student say, well, my dad owns a business and he's never treated people different because of their race. So most of their objections had to do with the fact that they never or rarely had to confront the the advantages that they or that white men in general had in society. But for white men, it seemed like even if they didn't necessarily like to hear me point out their privilege and they didn't plan to internalize or learn from anything um, I was exposing them to, challenging me was like a lighthearted leisure activity for them. It was never that, it, it was never that serious and they never seemed ruffled by anything that happened happened in the class. And I think that was because they were able to leave the discomfort of in in the classroom and go back into the real world where they were still privileged as white men. And because they were able to do that, it made the stakes a lot lower in the classroom. And while challenging me was fun, their identities weren't really threatened by me. So it was definitely misogynoir that made them question me the way that they did. Because, you know, if I had been a white man presenting them with the same information, I doubt that they would have tried to talk over me and other students of color and women the way that they did. But... There was something very different about the ways that black men reacted to and challenged me in the classroom. And before I talk about it, I want to give a stupid little uh, not all black men disclaimer. It wasn't all the black men in all of my classes. Most of the black men um, in my classes or the black male students in, in my classes didn't present any strong opinions one way or the other about me or about the material material that we were learning. Some of them were very engaged and very interested and very open to learning. And then there were the rest. So for the rest, it's like they had a very visceral reaction to a black woman and a young looking black woman at that in a position of authority over them. So when I taught, I wasn't much older than most of the students. And um, even I even had like a good amount of non-traditional students who were older than me. And I've also had a colleague suggest that not having a ring on my finger might have been a contributing factor for some of my experiences too, because we know men show more respect for other men's property than they do for women. Um, but like this subset of students pulled out all the tactics they could to belittle me, to undermine me, to make it clear that they didn't see me as fit to be leading them or the classroom in general. So I taught for about seven years and there may have been one, maybe two semesters where I didn't have issues with at least one guy trying to, you know, beat his chest and prove his dominance over me. And I'm going to offer two examples. So the first one was an individual. And the second one was a group of problematic, uh, problematic students. So um, let's start with the individual individual first. So one semester I had a student who wasn't very engaged. He didn't come to class often and he had several assignments that he didn't bother to turn in. And um, I believe he emailed me about the first assignment he missed and I agreed to accept it within like a certain time frame, but he still never turned it in. So 
the end of the year comes around and that's when students do their groveling and trying to make up for their shortcomings and their performance throughout the semester, whether for actual or fabricated emergencies or extenuated circumstances. So on one particular day, I had a line of students um, stay after class to talk, trying to see like what they could do about their grades. And one of the students was the guy who hadn't been in class very much. And at this point had missed like three assignments that had all been due at least a month earlier. So he asked me if he could turn in all three of the assignments. And I said, no, because I offered the opportunity to turn in the first one. Um, since I understood this stuff happens and, you know, maybe he really did have some kind of extenuating circumstances, like, let me be understanding and at least accept one, but that had been like two, that had been like two months prior. So, um, it was way too late at the end of the semester for him to turn in the first one. And I definitely wasn't taking the the ones after that, after he missed missed his opportunity to turn in the first one. So he kept trying to argue his case and, and I kept telling him no. Finally, he drops it and he starts to walk toward the door. And as he's leaving, he makes sure to say loud enough for me to hear, bitch. (laughs) Now, mind you, there was a line of students waiting to talk to me. So everybody heard him say it and everybody's mouth dropped. And we all just stood there for a minute looking at each other like, what the fuck just happened? And I mean... We could argue that that would have happened to a woman of any race, but I, you know, I have my, I have my doubts. Um, the fact that he would jeopardize any goodwill I had left toward him to call me a bitch, knowing that he earned a failing grade, but the final say was at my discretion. Like he really said, fuck it. You have the power to tell me no, but you're still nothing but a bitch. So he wasn't allowed back in the classroom to take the final. And I had someone in plain clothes in the classroom in case he decided to show up and retaliate. And I think that's one of the wildest experiences I've ever had while teaching. Um, <laughs> the other example is from a class I was teaching called African-American male-female relationships. And this was a group of students. They were especially antagonistic since... It was a group of them who sat on like one side of the room and they fed off one another. So, and two of the guys were were related. One of them was an uncle who was at least twice my age and one of them was his nephew. Both of them were disrespectful as fuck <laughs> along with the rest of the group. So um, this group, they would talk while I was talking and I had to repeatedly tell them to be quiet. If they raised their hands to speak, they would try to dominate and derail the class discussion by making comments that were completely irrelevant to the material. And then would like proudly admit that they didn't do the reading when I would be like, okay, what are you talking about? That's not on subject. Um, if I was making a point in class, they'd challenge it, but they were so focused on trying to prove me wrong that they'd end up contradicting themselves in the process. And the nephew was so disrespectful and had such an issue with me that I told him to come to my office to talk about his behavior because he was just so disruptive. And when he came, he accused me of being a feminist and having an agenda, having an agenda and said that that was his issue with me. And I asked him, had he ever read any feminist writing? And he said, no, he didn't need to read any because he watched YouTube videos. I am not making this up. The meeting went absolutely nowhere. (laughs) 
as you can imagine. And he left my office. And then the uncle, the uncle was no better. Um, one day I was standing at the front of the class preparing. This is before class started. And he says loud enough for everybody to hear, you should let me take you to lunch sometime. And everybody got quiet and looked around like, once again, like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> And I figured if he, like, I'm laughing now, but like in the moment, these, these, these were not fun to have experienced, but, um, I figured if he were actually expecting me to take him up on his offer, he would have asked me in private, like any other self-respecting <laughs> sexually harassing student would do. But, um, I feel like asking me in front of everyone was like less about getting me to go out with him and more about like a public display of putting me in my place. Like, okay, you're the professor, but I don't respect you as an authority. So let me hit on you in front of everybody to show you that I'm still a man and we still run this shit. So the disrespect that I got from black men in a lot of ways kind of when I think about it, it kind of mirrors the disrespect that black women get online. A lot of it was like attempts to humble me or bring me down a few notches or arguing just for the sake of arguing or moving the goalposts. And that's a lot of what I see online. So um, I would not be surprised if there was an overlap in the guys who gave me the most issues when I was teaching um, and the ones who harassed black women online for shits, and, for shits and giggles. So finally, I got so tired of the shit <laughs> that I decided to try a little experiment. And I had a black male colleague come and do a surprise guest lecture. I didn't tell the students that he was coming. I just, you know, on the syllabus, it was just a regular day. And they thought it was just going to be me doing the lecture. But I had a black male colleague show up and do it anyway. So um, he talked about the same topics I did using the same sources I did. And the usual problematic crew did a complete one, 180. Like they gave him their undivided attention. They didn't speak out of turn once. They didn't even offer commentary or so much as laugh too hard at his jokes. And it was very interesting to see. And when the professor left, I told them about the experience that I had brought him in to confirm my suspicions about their behavior. I told them that I knew that some of them have an issue with me as a black woman having authority over them because somehow they were able to take the same message from a black man. I kind of flexed my accomplishments a little bit, told them I wasn't up there at the head of the class for my health, but because I had done hours and hours of research and I knew what I was talking about. And they hated that I did that. I had a female student in the class come up to me like a few days later and tell me that she overheard the crew saying they lost respect for me after I did that. And like, I let out a guttural laugh because what respect? So to this day, my teaching experiences stand out as some of the most prominent examples of misogynoir that I have. And it's unfortunate that a lot of it was at the hands of black men, but it highlights some of the intra-racial, I always have to say that word slow, intra-racial issues that we have and have had for so long. So enjoy the interview and just remember one thing for me. If at any point you can tell that I am hardly able to contain my excitement, no, you can't. <laughs> Hello.
I am really excited about today's guest. We have with us here Dr. Moya Bailey, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Cultures, Societies, and Global Studies and the program in Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Northeastern University. Her work focuses on Black women's use of digital media to promote social justice as acts of self-affirmation and health promotion. And notably, she is the person who coined the term misogynoir. That is quite the introduction. <laughs> How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me, Kayla. So glad you decided to be here. So I'd like to start off by asking people a little bit about their background. And I know um, one of the things you're interested in is how interested in is how race, gender, and sexuality are represented in the media and medicine. So can you tell me a little bit about like your background and how you feel like that may have informed some of your interests now? Sure. So I'm from a little place called Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I knew from the time I was very little that I was going to be a doctor, a medical doctor. And then I got to college, Selman College to be exact, and I fell in love with women's studies. And, you know, I just did a 180, really, and decided that maybe not medical school, maybe graduate school, so that I could continue thinking about some of the questions that were sparked in my women's studies courses. So I got really interested in how medicine as a field or in medical education, doctors come to understand the different patient populations that they treat and the way that racism informs some of their decision-making. And so from that, I started to think about, you know, I was looking at these old representations in medical textbooks and yearbooks. And I was surprised to see representations of Black women that actually matched what I was seeing contemporarily. And I was like, wow, these stereotypes really haven't changed that much in almost 100 years. So knowing that, I started to think about, wow, what are, why is this so persistent? And also, why is it that Black women are the people who are generally targeted in these spaces where they aren't present. So Mm -hmm. that's really how I got started thinking about uh, representations and Black women specifically. Gotcha, gotcha. And one of the things I mentioned is that that you coined the term misogynoir. And that's one of the reasons why I'm excited about having you here is because I've actually taught students. So I've been through a doctoral program and I was like a lecturer for a little while and I left academia. But one of the things that I taught um, my students about was misogynoir because I taught classes in sociology and in African-American studies. So I want to start out talking about that a little bit. So kind of can you tell me how or what led you to coin the term? And what it means for and what, what it means for people who might not be familiar with it. Yeah. Sure. Uh misogynoir is a way that I describe the specific anti-black misogyny that black women experience. And it was actually in writing my dissertation that I was just talking about these, you know, early images and representations in medical school textbooks and yearbooks of black women that made me want to think about, you know, how are we being represented? How does that impact, of course, the way that we're then treated in medical settings? And so that's how I started thinking about the term. And when I was coming up with it, I, you know, I experimented for a while and 
I think it's important to say that I was writing my dissertation when I was coming up with this, that I was a student. So one, just to de-link the fact that I am a professor with the coining of the term, because I don't know that I would have felt so free, you know, as you get disciplined into the academy, there are more and more rules that you're expected to follow. And I do think that being a graduate student is part of what made me open. And the fact that I was writing for an online blogging collective that like gave the word so much exposure. And then um, Trudy being one of the people who was really instrumental and other people learning about the term and people being interested in it. I don't think that would have happened if I had had, you know, if I had been an established professor at the time. Just academic work, as you know, just stays over in academia land behind a paywall for the most part. So being a graduate student, I think, made it more accessible to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I, I also think that, you know, there's a different ethos of the internet now than even five years ago. Like, mm-hmm. I also don't know that the term would have moved in the same way if people had discovered it at this moment, as opposed to, you know, I don't know, nearly, what, 2010? So, yeah, so 11 years now. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. that it would have been the same had it come up at a different time. So, yeah, it's all been a very interesting experience in terms of how it's spread and people's interest in it. Yeah, so I was going to ask about that. So how does it feel to have coined a term that a lot of Black women identify with or feel like it has given voice to their unique experiences? How does that feel? Uh, I have to say that it's a little, uh, you know, it's it's good. It's good that people find the term useful. I think it's also hard that it has to be used so much. So that has been my general take on it. Like, I'm really appreciative that the language has helped people come to some different understandings than perhaps they would have if they didn't have the language. Mm-hmm. But um, it is just that, that there's always it seems always an occasion to use it. Mm-hmm. And that just makes me think of a question. Um, do you ever feel like it's being used in a context that you weren't originally intending it to be to be used or in a way that you weren't, um, the direction you weren't intending? Yeah, I think when it first came out, and even sometimes now I'll see people saying misogynoir describes describes anti-racist or describes racist misogyny, just general Mm -hmm. racist misogyny, and doesn't actually attend to the fact that I'm specifically thinking about Black women. Also, uh, you know, in being clear about the definition and who experiences misogynoir, I am thinking also about, um, you know, non-binary and gender non-conforming Black people who get understood as Black women as well. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Black women, of course, primarily, but then also for gender non-conforming, non-binary folks, part of the misogynoir they experience is being misgendered as women. So that feels like an important thing to note that doesn't always come up when people are thinking about misogynoir and how it operates. 
Mm-hmm. So um, you mentioned things that don't always come up in terms of massage noir. And I know that one, another one of your areas of interest is disability studies. So can you say a little mm-hmm. bit about how uh, the implications of massage noir for Black women who have disabilities? Because I'd like for that to be like a more visible thing. So can you say more about that? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm definitely steeped in the tradition of Black disability studies scholars and activists, disability justice activists who see anti-Blackness as deeply connected with ableism because so much of anti-Blackness is steeped on this idea of Black people as the other, Black people as deficient or not you know, quite right, the antithesis to whiteness and able-bodiedness. So I feel like it's already sort of embedded in our understandings of who we imagine Black people to be. There's this ableism that's just undergirding anti-Blackness. So when mm-hmm. I think of misogynoir and disabled Black women, I think it's another example of who gets counted and who doesn't. It's both that invisibility that comes with ableism, this idea that we can't even see disabled Black women, they're, they're not even on our radar. And then two, this hypervisibility of the strong Black woman in that mm-hmm. Black women are expected to just survive and be resilient and do, etc. cetera. Uh, I have a colleague, uh, Dr. Izetta Mobley, and um, Izetta and I worked on a piece um, about a Black feminist disability framework. And one of the things we talked about in there we're thinking about was the you know, phrase black girl magic and how that phrase can be so empowering. And it sometimes though can, I think for some people lead to this idea of somehow black women's resilience is what matters most as opposed Mm -hmm. to uh, black women getting the uh, access, accommodations, things that they need on a daily basis. So really trying to push us to think differently about how we organize and imagine who is included in our community and the ways that we can actually perpetuate ableism in our own ideas about who we should be. So I would say internalized misogynoir is another place where this question of ableism comes up because so much of us have learned and internalize the idea that we just have to keep pushing on and going forward despite mm-hmm. how we actually feel. And that this is manifest in, you know, just the, both for those of us who have physical, invisible disabilities, that there's just an expectation that as Black women, we're just going to keep moving. Yes, perfect. Great. So, um, I also wanted to see, since one of your areas is um, representation in the media, can you give us some examples of where we see misogynoir play out um, in media or in social media? Yeah, so recently I just wrote about uh, Meghan Markle and her and Harry's, you know, Brexit or Mexit, as people have termed it. And uh, part of that was just, I think, people not understanding that even as somebody who has a white parent, that Megan still experiences misogynoir. And that even though she is very light skinned, 
she still experiences misogynoir. And the way that looked was the, you know, subtle harassment that she experienced by the royal family and then the blatant harassment she experienced by the British press. I mean, one of the things, of course, that came out in her interview with Oprah was this conversation that Harry had had about, uh, you know, her unborn child's skin color, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that Archie was going to be, how dark was he going to be? And what was that going to mean for the royal family? And then, of course, the press uh, joking and making a comparison between the baby and a monkey. You know, that is very clearly steeped in stereotypes about Black people, Black women. And so that misogynoir, I think, is one of the most, I don't know, relevant and recent examples of how it looks in popular culture. And then you have other, you know, figures like Serena Williams and, um, you know, any Meg the Stallion, like all of these people who are being really portrayed in a way that doesn't match how they actually are and that the stereotype then informs the way that they're received in in public in in the way they're able to move through the world and of course if this is happening to celebrities to people with a lot of power a lot of uh clout then what mm-hmm. does that mean for people who don't have that so i'm right. thinking too about brianna taylor and you know, how do we think about the fact that, you know, after she was killed, uh, she was left, you know, in her apartment for hours, for nearly over 24 hours uh, while they were processing the scene. And so mm-hmm. those little things to me are evidence of how misogynoir operates to the point where, you know, not only did she lose her life, but she also did not have dignity in death because of how they treated her. And that was an assumption they made and a way that they treated her that I don't think they would have treated a white woman or someone else um, that has everything to do with her being a black woman. Mm -hmm. And even speaking of Breonna Taylor, the way that she has become sort of like an icon and for some people, her name, like a meme for, there was something going on last summer with people trying to, take something mundane and talk about it and then switch it up and be like, psych, justice for Breonna Taylor. And it was weird that they were using her name and attaching it to something to be funny and catchy. And so even the way that she was treated afterward was kind of indicative of, I feel like misogynoir because you don't see um, black male victims of police violence treated like that. At least I haven't, I don't, you know, I haven't really seen any. So yeah, yeah. No, great example, Kayla. I'm thinking specifically about one that was like, you know, here's a recipe for, you know, potatoes au gratin. Um, First you get, you slice the potatoes and then, you know, demand justice for Breonna Taylor. And, you know, it doesn't actually get us closer to demanding justice for Breonna Taylor. And also a lot of the demands for justice are based on, the same criminal justice system that got her killed in the first place. Um, one that has historically and contemporarily protected 
the cops who were able to take her life. So uh, for me, it has just been another another example of how memes can, you know, not get us to, to what it is that we want, the world that we want. Yeah, yeah. And um, you also mentioned Meghan Markle. I saw a little bit of back and forth or backlash from some people who were saying that, you know, Meghan Markle shouldn't be considered Black because she um, doesn't look Black. What what would you say about that in in regards to who is who is um, included in the term misogynoir since it's for Black women? Yeah, I mean, I think one you know people have said that Meghan Markle has never identified as Black, but I mean, I think we've seen evidence to the contrary. You know, people say that she has denied or that she's you know presented herself as white or is white passing. And uh, for me, I think it's important to think about how these terms get taken up in a contemporary moment and then get decontextualized from their original meaning. So mm-hmm. white passing is a very specific practice that happened where some Black people who could pass for white, which is its own term, chose to do so and were actively involved in a practice of passing for white, which meant, one, People, there were people who knew that they were Black. They had Black family members, but they actively disavowed and denied those connections to try and move through the world as white. Mm-hmm. And so that passing actually came with a lot of cost. You know, it meant that you weren't connected to your family of origin. There was always the fear of being found out. And, you know, it wasn't... Um, an easy thing because if you were found out, you could be killed. So passing for white um, is not the same thing as someone perceiving you as white or not being aware or thinking that you're light enough that someone could assume that you're white, especially Mm -hmm. since Megan goes everywhere with her mama and has been very public and very um, vocal in supporting um, her mother and having her mother by her side. So I really thought that was a curious moment. And also just the language that biracial, multiracial, mixed race, uh, all of these terms are relatively new, like in the last 40 or 50 years. Like these are not terms that we've had for a long time and identities that people have had for a long time that we really need to think about how racism functions and how it has functioned historically. And that racism and race are actually, you know, not that far apart from each other. So even this idea that Megan is black, which the, you know, clearly the British monarchy believes that to be so, hence their concern about, you know, Archie's skin tone there is an understanding that blackness is something aberrant and something that should not be mixing in with the royal family. So for me, that's a clear, that's a clear estimation that she is, or a clear articulation that they see her as black, even if other people, you know, seem confused. 
I wanted to talk about the book that you have that's available for pre-order now. So it's called Misogynoir Transformed, Black Women's Digital Resistance. Um, and I think actually it's available for pre-order now, but by the time this comes out, it'll it'll be around the time when it comes out. So I wanted you, can you tell us a little bit more about what we can expect from that book? Yes. So uh, the book is really about how misogynoir operates, but more importantly than how it operates, it's how Black women are moving to transform the way they experience misogynoir through their own interaction on social media platforms. So I look at Twitter hashtags. I look at uh, the way people use Tumblr. And I also look at how people are using YouTube uh, to make web shows. And specifically, uh, one of the things I want to trouble is the assumption that Black women, you know, TM always assumes that Black women are straight. So I spend mm -hmm. a lot of the time talking about Black queer women, Black trans women, uh, and also non-binary gender, non-conforming gender variant folks. Because there, for me, there's just a real, uh, I don't know, diversity in terms of how people are advocating against misogynoir and the kinds of media that they make. And that mm -hmm. uh, the media that these communities have been making really do transform misogynoir into something completely different. And mm -hmm. the, the title comes from this idea that, uh, you know, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So how do we transform all of that negative energy that misogynoir creates and channel it into something that's useful? And I think that the social media platforms that people have available to them have opened up some real possibilities for people to create what it is that they want to see in the world. Most literally in terms of the queer web shows that I talk about, and then also the kinds of things people curate on their tumblers and the hashtag conversations that they have via Twitter and other social media platforms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you mentioned focusing on queer and trans black women. Um, can you tell us why that's important and relevant to all black women? Cause I believe it is, but can you share with us how and why that's relevant to all black women? Yes. So this is actually an idea that I get from the Kambahi River Collective Statement, which is just a favorite of mine. And this is a Black feminist text uh, written by a group of Black lesbians uh, in the Boston area who had splintered off from the Black feminist organization because that organization was very uh, straight and also um, middle class to upper middle class. And so these were working class and lesbian women who felt really alienated from this group that was supposed to be from that for them. So by creating the Kambahi River Collective, they were trying to embrace those members of the community who were outside or on the margins. And in that statement, you know, one of the things they say is if black women were free, it would mean it would necessitate everybody else's freedom because, you know, black women are at the intersection of all systems of oppression. So we would have to get rid of racism, sexism, et cetera, if we were actually at the center of organizing. 
Similarly, if we have Black women who are queer and trans at the center of our organizing, it means that all other systems of oppression would be addressed. So for me, I'm really thinking about who is at the intersections of oppression. And I think that because queer and trans Black women find themselves often on the margins of even the spaces that are so-called for them, Black women's spaces, that if we look to them, we actually get a more accurate and real understanding of what the issues of our communities are and how to face them. And don't risk replicating what can happen when you have some sites of privilege that you aren't aware of and that you don't take into account. So right. one of the reasons that the Kambahi River Collective you know, really puts a lot of emphasis on Black women's experiences is because they make the point that Black men can, in some ways, still default and still benefit from male privilege, and that we also have white women who can still benefit from white privilege. But Black women uh, don't have the ability to be integrated into either oppressive system and end up on top. And so Mm -hmm. from that perspective, Black women are the ones who are saying, you know, tear it all down. Like we need to do something completely different. So similarly, it's queer and trans Black women who are saying, tear it all down. Uh, Even these systems that we think are helpful, like marriage, like, you know, all of these ways that we imagine our ideas about capitalism, et cetera, that all of these systems don't actually get us closer, again, to the world we want or having the things that we need to survive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you for explaining that. If if I have any former students listening, that should sound familiar. <laughs> we, actually read, <laughs> we actually read the piece by the Kambahi River Collective. So if any of my former oh, students wonderful. listening, they should be like, oh, yeah, we talked about that. So... <laughs> so anyway okay great so um can you I don't know if you feel like you've answered this already but what would you say has been some the impact of some of black women's um digital activism or digital resistance yeah I mean one of the things that I've been so proud to see is just the evolution of different people that I've followed for a long time so I mean I got into this topic as somebody who enjoyed using social media. So I was on Twitter, I was on Tumblr, uh, I've built connections and things on there. And so, you know, Janet Mock was like an early Twitter friend. And then to see Janet just blow up and, you know, Mm -hmm. the success of Pose and all of the other fantastic um, writing, directing that she's been able to do has been a real testament to the power of of these platforms to help build an audience and then build towards um, a career and leverage it towards towards something that's bigger than yourself. So that has been one of my my favorite examples. And her hashtag Girls Like Us, which was started for and by trans women, uh, led to some other people getting put on and getting, you know, their start in industry or 
a larger platform. So, you know, it was Janet using hashtag girls like us that led to Angelica Ross and Jen Richards becoming friends, moving in together, working on the web series, Her Story, Her Story, then getting nominated for like the first, I don't know, digital Emmy. Um, Mm -hmm. And then Angelica Ross and Jen Richards have gone on to act and, you know, do all kinds of wonderful work themselves. Um, I mean, so I just think that there's a real possibility when people are able to organize together and uh, work together to create what what it is that they think will uh, help their community and help them uh, get to where they want to be. Great. Okay, so I have one final question for you that I ask all my guests. Um, what has been one book or resource that has been formative for you? Oh, yes. So this is what I'm teaching right now. Uh, we're actually going to talk about it tomorrow in class. Uh, and that is in Petri's The Street. Um, the Street is a wonderful novel that to me is like the best example of sociology, African-American studies, uh, women's studies ever. <laughs> and it's a novel and it's such an accessible piece of writing and it's kind of haunting. Like I still think about what happened to the characters in that book to this day. Um, And it does to me such an important job of explaining how the material consequences of racism and sexism and capitalism in people's lives how those oppressive systems actually inform uh, people's interactions with each other. And yeah, I just see uh, the characters in there negotiating misogynoir, negotiating other systems of oppression, and uh, ultimately in the course of the story, not to give anything away, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't quite work out the way that you might think. But I think it's such an important opening and offering for how we can use study, we can use uh, our intellectual curiosity, our scholarship to tell other kinds of narratives. And I think it perhaps does a better job than, you know, a traditional sociology textbook or a traditional women's studies textbook? Yes, I love novels that can like find a way to offer piercing commentary on different things. It's so it's so fun. It's more fun than reading a traditional sociology book. But yeah, I love that. Great. So that's all the questions I have for you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe so you'll know when new episodes drop and rate and review so others will know how much you love the show too. If you want to keep up with me personally, you can follow me on Instagram at Not The Wifey Type. Until next time, I'm reminding you to belong to yourself.